Welcome back to the panel of 29 to 5. Now, Met Service has issued a severe thunderstorm warning accompanied by torrential rain for South Waikato, Rotorua. It says its weather radar detected severe thunderstorms near Waitapo, Waikati, Waikati Valley, Wairaka and Guthrie. It says the severe thunderstorms are moving towards the northeast and are expected to lie near Rotorua, Waitapo, Waikite Valley, Wairaka and Guthrie at 4.37pm, so about five minutes time, near Rotorua, Waitapo, Waikite Valley, Lake Tarawera, Wairaka and Guthrie at 7 minutes past 5pm. And Metservice says torrential rain can cause surface and or flash flooding about streams, gullies and urban areas and make driving conditions extremely hazardous. So please stay safe, everyone, in those areas. Now, going to Piha now. You're on the panel. Piha is still... Reeling from the devastation, mud and debris smashed through some of the homes there. Urban Surge and Rescue USA Intelligence Manager Jeff Maunder said today, uh, earlier this afternoon, their main focus today has been around Piha and Karekare. A big chunk of iconic Lion Rock has come down onto the beach below and rain has been falling in parts of Auckland too. Let's check in with Piha and Piha resident Troy Mentor. Kia ora, Troy. How are you? Very well. More to the point, how are you? Oh, we've had a pretty gnarly uh, couple of days, actually. Um, Pihar's doing pretty badly. Like we're, we've had, um, yeah, a lot of lot of flooding, and I think the main the main issue out here has been with um, the slips around people's houses. People's houses being destroyed by. Um, slips coming down onto them, and yeah, it's been it's been a lot of devastation actually, and yeah, it's quite quite shocking to see. Absolutely, and in terms of those yeah. slips, do we know if they if it's still um, they're still quite volatile? Volatile? Is there still movement there? What are you hearing and seeing? Yeah, actually, I, I just went up to um, Rainer Road about an hour ago, and. There was a lot of uh, residents rushing around, quite panicked, um, uh, pets in their arms, trying to evacuate and get all their essentials out of their houses because the slip there is still moving. And, um, yeah, they're, they're all worried that, that the, the rest of the, the hillside might come down. Um, I think that's been one of the main sort of issues out here is um, that, yeah, the, the the slips behind people's houses are just yeah going and just destroying their, um, yeah all their property. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you know Marine Parade South, which is the yeah. main road, uh, the main beachfront property of Pihar. Um, That's pretty much all being red stickered those houses there, which you know they're they've been there for forever and all these beautiful old batches and some, some really nice places that are being built there. And, um, you know, all the families there have had to evacuate and they're, they're just totally demolished um, by a couple of, like, maybe three or four big slips in, in that area. Mm. Yeah. Now, Troy, we've got a panel with us. Let's bring them in there. They'll have a question. Uh, Zoe. 
Yeah. Have you got enough supplies? You know, we're hearing a lot about other parts of the country where, particularly in the likes of Gisborne, mm-hmm. where there is a, a, a big effort to try and get food and water there. How are you going at Piha? Oh, we've been really well supported by, um, yeah, not, not only just the, like, mainly by the, the local community. We're all kind of rallying up around each other, which is just amazing to see. Like, so, so many people helping out each other, digging out their creeks and, um, drainage, um, holes, but also like sharing accommodation, opening up their houses to, to people. Um, which is amazing to see, and um, the, the fire department, um, the local surf club have been amazing, just opening up um, their their buildings for people to come in, charge their phones. Um, they got like water, and they're putting on dinner and lunches um, for everyone. So we're, we've been really well supported, actually. Like, um, so yeah, we really feel like. Community. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really, kia ora, Troy. David? I just had a message from a listener in Hawke's Bay who said one of the issues up there is there's been long queues at petrol stations. Everyone's trying to buy gas bottles and there's now looking to be a mm-hmm. shortage potentially of gas. Is that an issue up in your end? How's the, the gas supply um, up there? Well, um, there's not usually uh, a petrol station out at Piha anyway. Um, yeah, at the moment, I, we're running gas at, at my house. Um, so hopefully that gas bottle will last for a while. Hmm. Um, as far as petrol goes, we would usually have to um, fill up um, in town before we came out here anyway. So, um, yeah, and for for most of the last couple of days, the road has been a bit dicey. Like we we still don't know if we'll be able to get out. I, last I heard, there was one road that um, going through Waitakere um, Township that was still open. So hopefully we will be able to get out at some point there. But um, yeah, no, nothing about the the petrol or, or gas supply currently. Well, stay in touch, Troy. Keep uh, in touch yeah. with us on the panel, and uh, all the very best for uh, tonight, the next few days, and look into the future, huh? Yeah, kia ora, Wallace, and and thanks for your support and being out there for us. And you know, we appreciate all the help that everyone's given us out here. It's really amazing. Kia ora, Troy. That's Troy Mentor there. Um, keep in touch with us. Uh, 2101, wherever you are in Aotearoa, just, uh, you can uh, use us to be uh, eyes and ears for other people. Someone is asking me uh, about the, where is it? I'm wondering if the picturesque Eskdale Memorial Church has been affected, uh, says someone. It is uh, 4.38 on the panel on RNZ National. Do we have time, Zoe George, for, for a, a cricket update? <laughs> of course we do. There's always time we need, for a... We need a bit of joy. We need to know. Um, we need to know. So England are currently 147 for two. Uh, Ollie Pope is on 37, not out. And Joe Root is on 14 with a partnership of 30 from 43 and a run rate of 5.69. Wagner uh, is in the attack, but he's just bowled 
another extra and he's not doing so good. 47, 48 off his seven overs with an economy rate of 6.9. And Tim Southey is back into the attack in his last over. He only took uh, one run off his last over. In his bowling, uh, he's currently seven overs for 33 runs with one wicket. So uh, England are now 148 for two. And I promise to give you another update before five o'clock because on, it's you're... important. No, it is important. It's it's uh, and we're, we've been asked by yes. listeners, particularly well, Hawks Bay, for some uh, for yeah. some for some for some cricket. So we're yeah. talking about New Zealand versus England here, the first test. Yes. Uh, now to this. Speaking of sport, and uh, look, another yeah. news: uh, New Zealand's first ever Winter Olympic gold medalist has claimed the supreme honours at the Halberg Sports Awards last night. Twenty-one-year-old Zoe Sadowski Sinnott also won Sportswoman of the Year. This year's event is particularly significant as it's the first since the death of the man it's named after, running legend Sir Murray Halberg. Zoe is currently overseas, but her father, Sean, accepted the award on her behalf last night. And it's, we're, it is a delight for us to have Sean on the panel. Sean, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Wallace. Look, um, needless to say, you must be just so damn proud. I am incredibly impressed with uh, what Zoe's achieved and, um, yep, incredibly proud on behalf of my, my, my wife Robin and I and uh, all of the kids and all of the friends from school back in the day. And what goes through your mind when you see your daughter, 21 years old, taking out the Supreme, you know, the Supreme Award at 21? Do, do, do you get flashbacks of thinking of those, those days of you know, taking Zoe to snowboarding lessons or classes or taking her up the hill or that type of thing? Yeah, not, not really. I, I, I look back at... Um some of the past uh, recipients of the award, and, and there were some quite young ones, we must remember, you know, Lydia Coe, and, um, mm. you know, they, they were outstanding athletes as well at an early age. Yeah. Zoe. Yeah, I've interviewed uh, the other Zoe a few times. Uh, I did a big national portrait with her a couple of years ago, and everything is sick, which is awesome. Um, but <laughs> I, I love it. So, yeah. Uh, but, Sean, do you, when you watch her go down the slope and do those incredible tricks, do you ever just look away and go, no, I can't do it. This is too much? No. <laughs> um, I, I, no, I don't. I, I, uh, I kind of have a little bit little bit of insight into what she's um, been working on and we know she puts, you know, you don't just pull off one of these mm. on the day. There's a lot of effort that goes in for years in terms of trying to sort of progress your sport and what you do and um, yeah, I don't, you know, it's like it's like the hiccup, you catch an edge and you bag your head on the snow or something and you get a concussion. That's the stuff that we're more concerned about. Yeah. Yes, of course. You used to sneak her out of school, didn't you, when she was about 11 to get her up the slopes? Is that right? I mean, we're amongst friends here, you can tell us. <laughs> no. We no, just, uh. we, no, no, we just, we just didn't, ta- didn't take her to school. <laughs> <laughs> Education is important. Okay, but, that's know. right. Yeah, <laughs> the issue of truancy has been front and centre um, in, in some quarters there, uh, um, Sean. Look, David Ferris with us as well. 
Well, look, thank you for giving us Zoe Frying, a huge fan of the Winter Olympics. And it's actually been 99 years since they were established. And for Zoe last year to have got our first gold medal was just incredible. So I'm not surprised she won the Supreme Award. And perhaps a bit of a cheeky question, but were you surprised or were you thinking, look, surely yeah, she's going to get it? If you don't get for a gold medal at the Winter Olympics, the first one in a century, you know, what do you have to do? Good question. Um, first of all, my commiserations go out to the uh, Portis family for the scheduling for the Olympic Games. <laughs> because, <laughs> unfortunately, Nico got to go second. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have been the first uh, winner of an Olympic gold medal for New Zealand in Winter mm. Olympics. You know, it's all about scheduling in that regard. But right. um, in terms of were we, did we expect that she would win it? No, no, not at all. We did know that she'd put a huge amount of effort in. We did have a leading up to, and there, it was a totally loaded field, and there was a huge weight of expectation on his shoulders from the New Zealand public and actually the international community. And I, I guess we were just so happy that, as you saw, uh, I responded on the day, we were just so happy that she actually pulled it off. And that really just is a testament to how how uh, solid uh, the, the mental game is for Zoe. Absolutely. This is just amazing, uh, Sean. Uh, the, the supreme honours we're talking about, uh, 21-year-old Zoe sadowski Sinnott winning the Sportswoman of the Year. So, look, what's what's next? Uh, next is, um, is, is starts next week. It's the um, World Champs in for snowboarding and freestyle skiing at... Um, Baku Riani in Georgia, the ex-Soviet, uh, one of the ex-Soviet republic, republics. Um, they're flying in on the 19th via, uh, of all places, Istanbul, because uh, they can't go across Ukraine. And uh, Zoe will be uh, competing in slope style to try and defend her world championship medal. And we'll be... All across that, we uh, can't wait to see and experience that and hear about it. For now, though, Sean Sinner, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it, Walsh. Very cool. Now, uh, whether or not that church in Estelle, the wonderful Anne Johnson, who we had on just before, who was trying to get her family out of Estelle, uh, just said, yes, Estelle Church appears to be remarkably unscathed. So uh, there we go. Um, now, uh, some really wonderful uh, local hero and heroine stories coming through. Just those small acts of kindness, I guess, is what we're looking for tomorrow. Here's one. We'll expand on it tomorrow. I'd like to thank the young Napier couples who were in a long supermarket queue who offered our daughter, who's six months pregnant, and her partner a bed for the night. So we pick up on that tomorrow, and if you want to do a bit of a shout-out to uh, someone who has um, given an act of kindness, whatever it may be, however large or small, in your community, please do get in touch with us. Text me 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. David Farrer, Zoe George with me today. And to what extent will Cyclone Gabrielle move the dial 
on climate change. It seems that everyone I've come across in the street on the way to work, talking to people on the phone, anecdotally, people are saying, this time it's different. This time it seems real. It is real. Professor Dave Frame is Director of the New Zealand Climate Science, Climate Change Research Institute at Victoria University, Wellington. Professor Frame, kia ora. Kia ora. What's your sense on this, uh, Professor Frame, as someone who has worked in the field for some years now? Um, I think everybody agrees. You know, there's very little argument in New Zealand among the political parties about um, climate change's influence on extreme events. Um, we're, I'm actually uh, leading an Endeavour Fund program called Whakahura, which means discovery in English, um, which is looking at the links between extreme events and, um, and climate change. And we can see some, some, some fairly clear signals in things like temperature, but we can also see some links to uh, extreme rainfall as well. And, and I don't see political pushback against any of that. I think it's a question of how that, um, how we kind of work together. As the how. To put it together. Yeah. Let's go around the panel on this, David. Well, I think we're quite rare, perhaps, that every party bar one in Parliament hasn't just said climate change is happening, it's important, we need to both mitigate and adapt to it, but has signed up to the net zero target. I think it's worth reflecting what Professor Frame has just said, which is you can't pin one event to climate change and say climate change caused the cyclone, but you definitely can say that the consensus of the science is large weather events like this are going to become more common. The problem is that the solutions take so long. We're talking about if all the countries do what we do, you know, it will reduce over 20, 30 years the severity. But in the short term, it has to be more about adaptation, where you accept that we've got this in the next 20, 30 years. What should we be doing to adapt to it? while also doing that long-term target of reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. Does David Farrer have a point there? I think everybody can see we have to adapt, and we aren't going to to stop this problem overnight. It's going to take decades, um, probably most of the century, to get to net zero emissions for the whole world. And in the meantime, these kinds of um, experiences we're having, uh, heat waves and extreme events, are going to get worse. Um, and we have to learn to live with them, and we have to, um, you know, we have to think about how we manage events like this. And I, I was quite shocked at how fast things unfolded in Hawke's Bay. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot. I, I think we have a lot to learn, um, and we're the only people who are going to adapt New Zealand to be a fitter place, a more resilient place in the future. So, you know, so I think it's something we have to work on together. Uh, Zoe. Um, I'm just going to pivot slightly and give you a quick and very important update from the first test between England and New Zealand. So I know we should talk about climate change, but we need some happy news. We've just taken two wickets um, in two overs. So England is now 155 for four. Ollie Pope caught behind by Latham for 42 uh, and Root out for 14. Bold Wagner caught Mitchell. So Brooke and Stokes are now in, and they are on two not out and one not out. I'm, I'm sorry, climate change is very important, Good, but course. I wanted to bring you that. So. Sorry, thank you. No, really important as well. Can I just finish off, um, Professor Fran, by asking, will this move the pieces on the chessboard 
politically, there is a constituency who have really pushed back on emission targets. We had a person on the panel yesterday, Cindy Michener, she said, look, I hadn't thought about this much, but I'm going to say it, enough is enough. We now need to speak with one voice. Your thoughts? Well, I think that adaptation is a much easier political um, problem to solve than mitigation. In mitigation, you expect people to keep fighting about how big the bill is, who pays, and and so on. But adaptation, I don't see why we can't get together, do a better job of um, thinking about urban planning, uh, of infrastructure deployment, um, of resilience. There's no reason we can't work together, but we have to do something about quite a fragmented system of environmental governance, and I I think that's one of the big challenges. But there's no reason this can't be undertaken in a multi-party way. Nice to have you on. That's Professor Dave Frame there, Director of the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute. Just a bit of an update from our live blog, by the way, that's rnz.co.nz. Central Hawke's Bay businesses can open, must restrict water use. The Central Hawke's Bay District Council is telling businesses they can open if they can operate safely without excessive use of the town water supply. So level four water restrictions restrictions are enforced through Waipawa, Otane and Waipukuro and a boil notice is in place. It's eight to five. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Remember, Checkpoint uh, with Lisa Owen is giving you all the latest. I understand there's a media stand-up as well with Prime Minister Chris Hipkins. I think that's at 5.30pm, so stay tuned uh, to RNZ. They might even give you some cricket updates as well. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> to this, though, many affected floods are still without power. At one stage, there were 225,000 households that had no power. The issue of energy resilience is now in sharp focus and the vulnerability of centralised power systems to increasingly severe weather events. New research by Alan Brent and Sahail Massini has explored this idea of renewables-based microgrids. So let's talk about that. Alan Brent is Professor and Chair in Sustainable Energy Systems at Te Herangawaka, Victoria University. Uh, Alan, kia ora. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So firstly, um, what makes centralised power systems vulnerable? Well, and it's especially true in, in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You know? So we, as you said, we have these centralised big generators uh, sitting quite far away from where our demand is. And this means that we're moving electrons quite far up down the country. Uh, to supply customers, and yeah, the longer these transmission systems, the more vulnerable they are to these extreme weather events that we will be seeing from now on. So um, what you want to do is you want to bring the generation uh, closer to where the demand is and uh, go to smaller systems because, you know, if, if a big system falls over, you lose a lot of electricity generator capacity, whereas if you lose a smaller system, that's not the case. Got it. So and, the idea of a microgrid then, I understand they are in use in some other countries and centres. How do they work? Yeah, so what, what we do have is what we call more prosumers. So we have customers that also produce uh, electricity. So let's think about a small uh, community. There's, there's a few households. They all have solar panels. Uh, they might have some small wind turbines. They have batteries. They're supplying their own electricity uh, as 
uh, as is when they as they have enough of their own supply. But if they have excess supply or they don't have enough, then they can actually get electricity from their neighbours, and the community then takes ownership of these assets and uh, yeah, provide electricity for themselves. Okay, Zoe. How cost-effective is it to set up these little micro-power energy spaces, micro-grids? Yeah, look, I mean, there, there are challenges. And there's the many challenges that that's been discussed this, this week. In terms of, from a cost perspective, we've shown that uh, the cost of, of the individual components have come down quite considerably over the last few years. And uh, yeah, we too use a metric called levelized cost of electricity and uh, you, we could produce and supply this electricity within the community uh, at the rates similar to what we see in urban retail uh, rates at the moment. So from that perspective, it, it's quite cost effective, but it takes a lot of effort to set it up. Uh, a big barrier, as an example, if you're going into existing uh, community, uh, you know, we would need to get the lines companies involved because you want to yes. use the infrastructure uh, we need uh, some entity that takes ownership over of, of the assets as a whole. You need an energy management. I mean, you think about it, you, you basically have a trans power operating within the small community, right? So there's physical assets, there's smart technology now to, to operate everything in the virtual cloud. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's where the effort comes in. Someone says decentralised electricity generation. It's only taken RNZ ten years to talk about this. I'm sure it's been on. <laughs> I'm sure it's been on other shows. Uh, trust me. But really interesting idea. I know that there's a, a Brooklyn micro, microgrid, parts of New York, with this microgrid decentralising electricity. David. I'm interested in what the logistical challenges in terms of area for one of the articles I read was that if you're going to be able to use this over more than a small community, but perhaps a larger town, you might need quite a lot of space. Can you give us any information on what is the size of that challenge in terms of how much land area you need for it? Yeah, so that all is very, very site dependent, um, of course. So we've done some analysis for, for urban uh, urban areas. Uh, as long as you have reasonable roof space available that's, that's orientated north, uh, obviously then you're not using up any land. But in a certain context, uh, the roof space not, might not be appropriate. So yeah, then you're going to need some centralized uh, generation possibly. Uh, but it's, it's about how you use your land resources more smartly. Because you can do things underneath the PV panels, right? I mean, at the very least, you can go park a car there, but it's, you know, we need to move away from cars. But uh, in, in some communities, we've, uh, we've started looking at agricultural production underneath those panels. So it's, it's not necessarily the amount of land that's necessarily needed. It's just how we plan uh, our, our communities in a more smart way. Nice one, Professor Alan Brent there, Professor and Chair in Sustainable Energy Systems. It's an interesting idea, isn't it, that idea of microgrids or decentralising our power. By the way, speaking of kindness, Hawks Bay Racing Club are offering temp homes for livestock and meals tonight. Hawks Bay Racing Club offering temp homes for livestock and meals tonight. David Zoakura, thank you for your time. I'm Wallace Chapman. Stay listening to RNZ. Lisa Owen with Checkpoint is next. Big thank you to my producer, Charlie Drever. See you tomorrow.